That's why I called Dick my mentor, because he's the one who got me teaching. And then one time in a manager's meeting, I was a, there's something going on in the meeting, and he suddenly turns and he says, this is after he had told everybody that Esalen is a bus stop. This was Dick's philosophy. Esalen is a f bus stop. People come here and they learn, and then they go out and they share what they've learned. But in the middle of this meeting, he suddenly says, she's going to be here forever. Little did he know that it's kind of almost been forever. It's 50 plus years that I've been here. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is an Esalen legend, Deborah Meadow. Deborah came to Big Sur and the Esalen Institute in the late 1960s and found it much to her liking, so much so that she never left. Deborah started her Esalen career as a waitress, then became one of Esalen's first yoga teachers, and finally, she found her home as a massage therapist, where she helped develop and shepherd a school of touch that would come to influence practitioners around the world. Through more than 50 years of service to Esalen, Deborah has been a beloved community member, teacher and leader, insightful and intelligent, curious and kind, often hilarious and totally unique. Our interview begins in Indiana where she grew up and it ends with an incantation featuring her famous rattle. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Deborah Meadow. I want to uh, get into, see, I, I want to start this off by accessing a little bit of your history. So tell me about where you come from. Tell me about what it was like for you growing up. I was born in South Bend, Indiana, home of Notre Dame Fighting Irish <laughs> football team. And I grew up in a Jewish family. I had three siblings, two boys and two girls. I was the first girl, the third child. We lived in, I guess you'd call it a suburb. It's not a suburb. We lived in South Bend. We lived on a corner lot. We were lucky to have green around us. So I grew up with actually big green bushes around the house because we had a big picture window. Were there many Jewish families in, in South Bend? There was a large community of Jewish people. There were two synagogues at least, so that's somewhat of a community. And we were active, my parents were active in the community. They okay. even, in the synagogue they had, there was a hall that my grandfather donated to and it was called Meadow Hall for a long time. And was your grandfather from South Bend, or where did he come from? He came from Russia. My grandfather, one grandfather immigrated from Russia, the other immigrated from Lithuania, and the one that came from Russia was in a little town called Kratovchina. There's confusion now over what was Poland and what was Russia, but and then my grandmothers also came from Eastern Europe places, like probably Russia and Poland. And one of my grandfather's father was a rabbi. However, they weren't like super Jewish, but they were Jewish enough to what we would call it traditional in that day and age. Immigration people changed the names of people when they couldn't spell them. I think the name was Medvanovsky, uh -huh. and they shortened it to Meadow, uh -huh. and they spelled it M-E-D-O-W. And my other grandfather from Lithuania, I don't know exactly how he got here, but his name was Reimer, R-Y-M-E-R. And later on, after he immigrated, they all immigrated before Hitler and before the wars were happening. He later found out, my other grandfather, that he had a brother that was in Karak, that was in actually Cuba. And that name was spelled Ramirez. So, you know, people were leaving to save their lives and protect themselves. And then there were other parts of the family that died in the Holocaust, but they all came over. And we had a pretty active Jewish life growing up, not Orthodox. So was was religion part of, I mean, the spiritual aspect of, of Judaism, was that part of your life? We went to Sunday school. We studied the books. 
I actually loved sitting in the synagogue. I loved sitting with my mom. The mom, the women sat on one side and the men on the other in this particular synagogue. But little kids could go visit, so I would go visit my dad occasionally on the men's side. But there was there was community, mm. and we sang, and I loved singing, and we prayed. So I guess I've always grown up with praying. I never thought about it till this minute, because I still pray. But I don't know that I'm praying to a god or a goddess. I think I'm praying to a higher place inside myself, and I recognize God and goddess in everybody and everything. So I hope I'm learning how to do that for sure. But I think it's in each one of us. And so, but when I pray, I'm praying to that to be able to tune into that place inside myself, and then, like before I do a session, to to be whatever it is the channel for whatever it is that needs to happen for the person I'm working with. Tell me what your life was like uh, as like as a teenager growing up in, in South Bend, Indiana. Okay, so I always kind of pushed the edges a little bit. For instance, when we had a book report, I wanted to do it on the Communist Manifesto. Well, in the 19, late 50s, early 60s, you didn't talk about the Communist Manifesto. My teacher freaked out, what? And going, well, I'm interested in this. This is just a piece of information, but she really didn't want me to report on it. And also, in that day and age, I was interested in, the, we had to write a report on where we wanted to visit. I wanted to go to China. You weren't supposed to think about places like China in America in that day and age. When I got to high school, I had two older brothers and we were all very close to each other. But when I became 14, 15, my older brother went off to college, but then my second brother went off to college. And I think I missed male contact because I had a contentious relationship with my dad growing up. After school, walk in the house, take off my shoes, leave them by the door. He did not want, he'd come home from work later on, the shoes would be by the door. He would get very angry about that. Finally, he started throwing them in the wastebasket. Then I'd have to go fish them out of the wastebasket, but I kept doing it. I have no idea what was going on. What, what, what was your father's job? My father was a car dealer, one of the few honest car dealers, because uh-huh. we talked about it at dinner a lot. We would talk about what was going on with the car dealership. He had sold used cars, too. At first, my grandfather did, then my dad took over, and he developed the business even more. So you're a somewhat rebellious teenager, and it's the early to mid-60s? Yeah, it's mid-60s, really. But then in around 64 or 3, I got involved with somebody who was a year and a half older than me, and this is why I brought in my brothers. I think part of it was reaching out for more male contact in my life, and I actually got married and had a baby. Married at age 16, baby at age 17. So now, was, was this done in getting married Nobody at 16? Nobody did that. Okay. Nobody did that in that day and age. Plus, I was a good student. And so a nice, quote, nice Jewish girl, because I'd never been with anyone else, so this is, just didn't do that. And then I actually had enough grit. I didn't have a junior year. I had my junior year. I didn't have a senior year. Nobody knew I was pregnant, and I was five months pregnant and six months pregnant in the end of that class because the baby, John Ricky, was born at the end of August. So there's a lot of story with all of that. What was, what, tell me what the wedding was like. We didn't have, we got married by Justice of the Peace okay, so in Wisconsin, kind of where my other brother, in Wisconsin. My, in Wisconsin, Madison, my brother was going to school in Wisconsin, so we went there and got married. Were you, were you in love? I thought I was in love. Mm-hmm. He thought he was in love, but he was like a bad boy. 
he was always getting in trouble. He was more, much more rebellious, but in a kind of negative way. So I think he got into fights. He was kind of a stock, he was a good-looking, stocky young man, and he picked fights and stuff. I wasn't like that. I don't know how the heck we got together, but we did. And um, I left him before Ricky was born because he was getting physically violent, and I was afraid of what he would do with a baby because he was taking the dog that we had and doing things that weren't kind to the dog. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure what he'll do with a baby. I can't have this. And then we had this big fight, and he punched me in the shoulder. And I went, okay, I need to leave. And he wouldn't let me out of the house. And it was an apartment. And then my parents came knocking at the door. He wouldn't let them in. It was a whole horrible scene. I managed to convince him that that was going to have the opposite effect on me to keep me locked in. And he let me out. And then I moved in with my parents. And then about a week before she was due, I was taking a, a walk. And when I was taking this walk, all of a sudden he pulled up alongside of me and he had somebody with him and they threw me in the car and they started driving off. I'm nine months pregnant. The baby's due any day, maybe a week. I go, Mike, this isn't going to work. This is going to have the opposite effect. And he wouldn't let me out of the car. And then he stopped at a stoplight. I opened the door and I jumped out and I ran. And where did you run? Back to my parents' house. And he, he let me be and he didn't follow me. And then I went to labor about a week later. We actually induced labor by drinking cod liver oil and grape juice because my doctor was going to leave town and I didn't. I wanted him to deliver the baby. So I think he did all kinds of things in that day and age, August of 65. And so I had Ricky in the hospital. And the interesting thing, in 1965, nobody was nursing, or very few people. They weren't nursing their babies. I have no idea where it came to me. I'm in the bed, they bring the baby, and then they say, we're going to bring you a bottle. And I said, no, I want a nurse. And they went, you want a nurse? Like it was a bad thing? I only did for four months because then I went back to school. So you're, you're a 16-year-old mom or 17? 17-year-old mom, yeah. 16 for most of the pregnancy and 17 when she was born. Way too young to have a child and living with my parents. And I wanted to finish high school because I had enough credits to graduate, but I didn't have two required courses. So I went to night school and that was such a crazy experience because there are all these people that are not like the students that I've been going to school with. You know, they're night school people who are trying to get their degree and and some of them were almost, they look like what would then be called hoodlums and it was uh, who had, were trying to get their their credits because they goofed up in school or something. But, and I also took the um, the SATs even though I hadn't been in school for a year, I took the SATs. I actually, uh, somehow I was a commended scholar with the SATs, which is pretty good when you haven't been in school at all and you've been with a baby. And the other thing was that I, they didn't want me to walk across the stage and get my diploma. So they made me sit in the audience and they called my name. But I couldn't walk across the stage because they didn't want somebody who had a child and was married at age 16. How'd that make you feel? Terrible. I'm still recovering. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm not recovering, but I sure don't want that to happen to anyone else. It was tough enough being married and pregnant, or pregnant and married at age 16 and 17. You know, I lost friends. I found out who my real, real friends were. 
And I really was in a different place. And that was hard. And also, I had a really fun, beautiful little girl, so that piece was also beautiful. And I was not into doing what everybody said I should do. I was doing what I thought was the right thing to do, Yeah. which sometimes pushed edges. So in a way, you were poised to join this sort of youth movement and counterculture that you eventually became a part of. Definitely. What was it that kind of pushed you to join the hordes of young people who um, made their way out to California during this period? I got accepted at a couple of universities, and I went to Michigan State, and I actually went to Michigan State, and I stayed there. And I would come back on weekends, and it was really tough. I hitchhiked some of the time because hitchhiking was safer then, but it was really tough. And so eventually I came back and stayed um, with my parents. And then I went to St. Mary's College, which was affiliated with Notre Dame. At that time, Notre Dame didn't allow female students. And then I also went to Indiana University, which had an extension there. And then eventually I took my daughter and we went to Indiana University in Bloomington. So I did a lot of different things in a short period of time. And... Right after the Six-Day War in 1967, I went to Israel. That was a whole other thing. And my daughter stayed with my parents and my brother, older brother, oldest brother and sister were at the same kibbutz. So I lived on a kibbutz for four months. That was an amazing experience. They were different than the children lived in one place on the kibbutz and it's different now. And Esalen, in a way, is its own kibbutz. I've, uh, I've often thought that. Yeah, I've, I've spent a, time on kibbutzim yeah, as so. well. I've, I've made that comparison. Yeah, never it, never spoke about it, though. Yeah, I lived on a kibbutz called Ramat David, which was right near Fula, which was near the airport where things flew in and out. We actually had to... It was so close to the ending of the war that we still had to duck down in lorries when we drove across Sutton Fields because there were snipers. It was a wonderful experience. I had... On my kibbutz, there were a lot of, there were South Americans, some, a few girls from California. I hadn't been to California yet. And, um, of course, Israelis. So I had studied Spanish in school. We spoke in, in Spanish, Hebrew, everything got all mixed up. And we communicated, and it was great. However, my daughter was here, and I was there, and I got a scholarship to the Hebrew University. I don't know how I got the scholarship, but I got it, because I was a good student, and who knows why. But I couldn't, we couldn't figure out how to get my daughter to Israel. So, because in that day and age, you didn't fly kids alone across the seas, and it was too expensive to go back and forth at that time. So I came back home, and I went back to school, and then we went down to Bloomington, so somewhere in there. I'm trying to remember the timing of all this. And she lived with me while I went to school. Well, it wasn't making sense to me. I didn't understand what I was doing. Here I was in school. I had a daughter. I love my daughter. I'm studying this stuff. Why am I studying this stuff? At that point in time, I was majoring in philosophy, I think, and minoring in biology. I have no idea how I got to that because I hated biology in high school, but somehow I did. And so I wanted to quit school and hitchhike to Mexico with my daughter. And my parents went, yikes, no. (laughs) We, We don't want you to do that. That's not safe. We heard about this place called Esalen. How about if you go to Esalen and you take a workshop. So I went, oh, I haven't been to California yet. I said, okay, uh, I'll do it. So I flew out to California and my parents graciously were taking care of Ricky. And I took a workshop with Claudio Naranjo. When I flew out, 
I hitchhiked from Monterey to Big Sur at Rio Road. I caught a ride with these people in a Volkswagen bus. So we start driving along and they stop and we, I've never been out to the coast. They stop and we climb out on the rocks and we climb down to the ocean and I was like, oh my, oh my God, this land. And then we kept going along and then when we got to the top of the hill at Essel and they let me out, I um, start down the hill and honestly, I know people say it, but I mean it. I felt like I'd come home. And I came down that hill and I don't remember where I went for that first week. I can't even remember what meeting room it was that first week. I do remember the following month. But anyway, I took this workshop with Claudio. Within a few days, I was offered a job. There was a guy named Gopher who was the head of the kitchen. He offered me a job in the kitchen while I was in the workshop. Being a waitress. Oh. So I'm going to finish the workshop story first. I took Claudio's workshop and then immediately I took a month long with John Heider and Steve Steve Stroud. That was life-changing for me. What was the content of the month-long workshop? It was kind of like a almost like a residency program but it wasn't. It was a month-long intense with just about everything you could do here. I, I think it was more like an experiencing Esalen which did not exist but we did a lot of um, experiment. Everything was being experimenting with that time so it's funny, I don't even know what the title was, but we did a lot of process work, and John Heider is really a good guy. He is the one who made it possible for us to build those staff units. He got a lot of people to donate for that. Now those units, some of them are used for housing for seminarians, but they were originally all staff. Anyway, I took that workshop, and one of the things that was so weird and crazy was Remember, this was an experimental place then. One of the things they did is they wanted to keep the bathroom door open. I had the hardest, I'm a Midwestern girl, modest. I haven't even talked about going down to the baths the first time. I didn't want to go to the bathroom with that door open. You couldn't see into it, but (laughs) it was an experience. What was the idea behind it? Break down barriers. There were, that was just a nothing. There were so many other things that happened in that workshop. It was very powerful. There was one man in there who had a drinking problem, and I remember sitting with him. There were people in there who made big changes in their lives. Well, tell me the story about the man who you sat with with the, the drinking was, problem. Okay, so there was a residency program that was happening, and they invited me in to teach yoga. I was, in the, I was teaching yoga to the group, and then they invited me in, and they scholarshiped me in. Um, this man had a drinking problem, and we sat, and he was processing, talking about his drinking and everything else. It's the only time I ever felt like I levitated, because talking with him, suddenly I felt like we both lifted. We were not on drugs, and we I feel like we both lifted off the ground. It was a deep interaction, and he stopped drinking, and he became a teacher. He became a, a rolfer and a Feldenkrais teacher. Those were powerful times. Tell me a, a little bit more about this, like this month-long residency program, because you're fresh. You're fresh from the the Midwest, and it sounds like you've done some alternative things by this point. You went to Israel. You you chilled out on the kibbutz, but you weren't doing encounter groups in no, in Israel. So you, no, I'm. I mean, this is a bit of the challenge of digging into this history. But I kind of want to just dig into the specifics of when you say process. 
and a variety of things that went on during the residency program. What are the different kind of categories? Is it body mind stuff? Is it just is it massage? Is it encounter group psychological exploration? There were all of those. That's why it was a residency program. That was a two month residency program. Some of the other ones were four. Um, Definitely, we did some encounter, and I think we may have even brought in Will Schutz. And we did some of uh, we did Synanon games, which I really didn't like at all. That was Seymour's thing. And it's well, where what you, is Synanon? It's where somebody's in the center, and you kind of say all you directly say things that you don't like that they are doing. But the way it's done is pretty harsh for some. That was my experience of it. Somebody else is going to ex- explain it in a different way. And it didn't work for me. I didn't like that because I'd rather present things in a kinder way. There's a way to give feedback that isn't necessarily enjoyable feedback, but it can be done in a gentle way. This was not. This was like, boom. And then it's like, how do you react to this? One person said to me it was good for them to have all that come at them because then they learned how to stay grounded and centered in the midst of getting attacked. That's not the way I would choose to do it. What did it sound like? Like, say something to me as if it was a synonym. It's so long ago, it's really hard for me to think of. Um, I don't like how you are with your child. You do this, that, and that, and it's it's bad. (laughs) I mean, not even necessarily owning Gestalt language. So as soon as I started, I took a workshop in massage, movement, and yoga while I was working in the kitchen, and my teachers were Gabrielle Roth and Joel Kramer. Gabrielle taught massage and she had not developed the five rhythms yet. That was the kickoff point for me in terms of doing massage work and yoga. Both things at the same time. I can't think of a better way to come into learning about the body than those two things at the same time. I always knew I was interested in moving my body around. I danced. I loved being a wild dancer in the Midwest. Taking that workshop, the the massage was great. I started off massage, and the yoga was great, and I'm not a halfway person, so I dove into both things while I was still working in the kitchen. By this time, I was no longer a waitress. Well, you never told me about the waitress thing. Well, that's because we got sidetracked. <laughs> so, waitressing. Yes, we had waitresses in the old days. We all wore these long skirts, and we said, would you like coffee or tea? Would you like vegetarian or meat? Unfortunately, the vegetarian then was usually a piece of cheese or something like that. And by the way, I, I was vegetarian. I became vegetarian just before I came here and when I was here. Then the staff was growing and growing. And suddenly they decided that there were too many staff and they were cut the staff down to 35 people. Mm. So they made all these big changes and then they made head waitresses and cooks. So I became a cook, which is kind of hysterical. I was a cook and Peggy was my head waitress of my crew. <laughs> Peggy Horan. Peggy Horan. So, so um, she wasn't into massage yet. I was getting into massage. So I was starting to get into massage as I was being a cook. And by the way, because I was vegetarian, they decided that I would only cook vegetarian because after a while I said, you know, I can't taste the meat. Somebody else has to taste the meat if I'm going to cook it. And then finally I said, you know what? I don't want to cook meat anymore. I cooked vegetarian, but they kept giving me, they made the menus. I'd have to do fried rice on the grill all the time, which I hated because I smelled like fried rice. Still, I'd taken that workshop and I'd start doing yoga. So in the morning before I work, I would start doing, I'd do a couple hours of 
some yoga. Then I get off of work and I feel like, wow, I feel like doing some yoga. So I do another couple hours. I started doing this daily. Then I started waking up at 3.30 in the morning. I go, why am I waking up at 3.30 in the morning? And then I decided maybe it's a message and I need to get up. So I started getting up. And I'd meditate, not so much meditate, but more just do yoga. I didn't have a teacher then. Joel had kind of left Esalen. There wasn't, he was a yogi in residence at the time. Joel? Joel Kramer. He later wrote a book, Passions of the Mind, or or The Passionate Mind, something like that. And I was like doing it on my own by looking at the book, Light on Yoga. So that was my Bible, and I was teaching myself. And then at some point in time, I really was tired of being in the kitchen and Dick would walk through 23, and sometimes I would be doing yoga in room 23. And I was really adept and very flexible at this point in time, and I had this thing where I ended up standing on my head for a half hour and then following with a shoulder stand for a half hour. The first 15 minutes would be standing on my head, a breath a minute, and the next 15 minutes I would be doing variations of the headstand, and then I'd follow with the shoulder stand, same thing. It wasn't that I decided to do it. It's just something that evolved over time, and I was going, oh, I'm inhaling, oh, I'm counting to 30, and then I'm exhaling to 30, so that was a minute. So Dick walked through, because he would go on these early morning hikes. I don't know why he was walking through room 23, but he was. And one day he walked through and he said, okay, you're ready to teach. (laughs) And so that's how I got my first workshop in massage, movement, and yoga. By then I was already out of the kitchen, but I got into the garden. I was in the garden as because you had to be working here. You could not get housing if you were just doing massage unless you were with somebody who had another job here. So eventually I let go of the kitchen and I worked in the garden, but I was really more into massage and Dick knew that. So one time I went back to my visit my family in the Midwest and when I came back, Dick had moved me into a house off property. Is this this is still late 60s, early 70s? This is early 70s. Okay. Mid, yeah, early 70s. Because I was on property for the first couple years. And so I also took workshops with Dick. And Dick, that's why I call Dick my mentor, because he's the one who got me teaching. He put me in a housing. It was off property, but it was a housing. And then one time in a manager's meeting, I was a community rep. There's something going on in the meeting, and he suddenly turns and he says... This is after he had told everybody that Esalen is a bus stop. This was Dick's philosophy. Esalen is a bus stop. People come here and they learn, and then they go out and they share what they've learned. But in the middle of this meeting, he suddenly says, she's going to be here forever. Little did he know that it's kind of almost been forever. It's 50-plus years that I've been here. On the ground, I think I'm here more than the big four. I call us the big four. Tell me, who's the big four? The big four are from the massage crew are Vicky, Brita, Peggy, and myself. Vicky Top. Vicky Top, Peggy Rian, Brita Ostrom. And we have helped develop Essel Massage over the years because we've been here that long. And it's amazing to have been in relationship with these people for that long. And we've gone through our ups and our downs. We're like sisters and friends, and we argue and we love each other. Before we get into that, I want to explore those first couple of years that you're on property. Tell me more. Tell me about the sights and the sounds about what this place is like during, because it's such sort of a cultural touch point, the late 60s. There was a lot of um, exploration and experimentation going on with who and how we are in our bodies and who and how we are with each other. East and West, how do we bring those together? I think that's a lot of what Dick and, and Mike were doing. Michael were doing. Dick was on the ground. 
and that's why he was here. Mike wasn't here, and that's why some of us felt more bonded on the ground with Dick, because he was literally here. I have to talk about Dick, because people make him an idol. I don't want to idolize him, but he did some great things. We were more able to deal with people who were in a spiritual, what later was coined spiritual emergency by Stan Groff, because Dick was willing to work with him. He was willing to take them out and go for a hike and get them grounded. He was willing to send them to the garden to work in the garden and get them grounded. I never thought about that. Maybe that's why he sent me to the garden. I don't know. Um, when you say spiritual emergency, you mean people who are dealing with states of... Um, states of consciousness that aren't easy for other people to deal with and maybe not easy for them to deal with. I notice how as I get older, I'm changing the way I phrase things. And I like that phrasing because it's not that they're crazy, but somebody else might call them that. It's that they're having a different experience of reality and they need some support in how to navigate that experience and not trigger other people. Dick was really good at that. And his his way of sitting in gestalt with people, and I did study gestalt work with him and with John and with other people, he didn't push the process. And it's super important. Is he was more laid back. He would give suggestions. He would reflect without pushing people into something, but helping them become aware so they can come to their own realizations, mm -hmm. which is what we're doing in massage, too, only with the body. Did you feel that in your own personal process that something was being uncovered? I mean, you were, you were so young at that time. I you was probably so young. I was finding out who I was. All, I'm still finding out who I am, but definitely I was finding out who I was at that moment in time. I was shy and not shy, you know, so I spoke up and didn't speak up. So I was learning how to do that and also learning how to do it in a way that where I still work with that, how people can listen to me and not get triggered when I present something that may not be what they want to hear. Tell me a little bit about this early days of Esalen Massage. What was, was there a massage crew when you came? There were a few people on the massage crew. So Molly Day Shackman and Bernie were developing Esalen Massage, Bernie Gunther. Bernie Gunther was, <laughs> he was a strong personality and liked to order people around a little bit. I didn't like to be ordered around. And one time I was in with a group of people where he was telling us everything we needed to do and the whole group got upset and threw him in the pool. He did not like being thrown in the pool. Wow. <laughs> he retaliated. <laughs> he asked me if I would be in a video he was doing about something at the baths, and I said, sure. And he said, okay, we're gonna be, you're going to be washing your hair. I have no idea what it was about washing my hair. And then he, one of the buckets of water that had to go on my head had cold water in it, and I didn't know it. So that bucket got dumped on my head, and that was his retaliation for getting thrown in the pool. However, Bernie did study with Charlotte Silver, and Charlotte was very influential in how we do massage because she helped all of us learn, because I did get to take a couple workshops with her, about sensory awareness, about sensing and feeling on very sensitive levels. And that influenced the way that we touched and approached massage. And there was already an Esalen massage, but we, it continues to still evolving. And it, it will keep evolving because if it doesn't, it's dead. Like everything still needs to grow. It's still growing and changing. Um, back then, there were a few people who were, I remember Storm, Storm Acciola was on the crew. She was a very beautiful, lovely person. And 
Her husband, Ron Acciola, was one of the big Sir Drummers that was also part of that time and space, which I might refer to later, because they came down and played music every Wednesday night. And the community would get out on the deck by the lodge and loved it. It was great. Drummers, big Sir Drummers. But anyway, Storm was a great masseuse. She was so the epitome of strong and flowing. And there was another woman named Joe Harris. There were a few other people that were here. My first massage was from a guy named Charlie. I'd never, ever been touched in that way before. And it was like, wow. If you had told me 52 years ago, remember I've been here 51 years, I never would have thought I would be doing massage, teaching myself, what? What are you talking about? No way. That massage made me feel something I'd never felt before, touched in a deep way, but not sexually. And that was super important to me. And then... That particular, that piece of it was important? Tell me more about that. About getting getting a massage. I never had a massage itself before, but getting a full-body massage that didn't feel sexual, but did contact me on deep levels. I wanted to do that for people. Uh, He did that, and I went, wow, this is really special. Because dropping into that deep of a place inside myself, I think that if we can help other people come to that place inside themselves, that's where healing happens. I get up, up on a pedestal when people say they're healers. No, I don't think we're healers. I do think we help people heal themselves by helping to create a place where they feel safe and supported and can drop into deeper places inside themselves and then their natural healing ability comes out. What was it like to want to focus on that element of healing during this time when at the same institution at Esalen in the late 60s there was a lot of this confrontational psychological work? Was it that you you felt this path was more effective to healing? It's really interesting that you say that because I was studying Gestalt and Encounter stuff but I didn't choose to go follow Dick around all the time, only some of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so because I went the bodywork and movement path because it spoke to me. And I think that they can dance with each other. I think they're all awareness practices. And that's what this place is about, is helping people become more aware, whether you're washing dishes, doing gestalt session, um, being in an encounter with somebody or giving a massage. The quality of presence that we can bring to that interaction, whatever it is, that's what I hope we're teaching at Esalen, one of the things we're teaching. Tell me about how you become an Esalen massage therapist in 1970 or in whatever In the 70s, it's totally different than now. We, we just did massage. We took a training, we took a massage workshop, and then we practiced massage a lot. And then I gave a massage to Dick, and he hired me. Mm-hmm. Dick, not Dick Price. Dick um, Haran, who was head of the massage crew when I got hired. He hired me, and then I started doing massage, and we had these four massage rooms down at the Baths. One of them, Danny, Danny B., lived in that room for a long time at night, and then in the day it was a massage room. I'm telling you, it was different then. The rooms were very small. They were room A and room B, and then there were two other rooms that were in the old Baths that got replaced where the shower was. Before it was a shower, it was two massage rooms tiny rooms. One of them you could barely move around. How much um, did you get paid? Oh my gosh. I'm glad you asked that question. When I first came, I think I got paid $5 for a massage and the massage was $10. For an hour and a half, we did hour and a half massages at that time. 50%. We did. But then it got better. They raised the price to 
$10 and we got paid $7. Then they raised the price to 15 and we got paid 750 or 7 And then eventually we got paid 10 and it was 15 And then gradually the massage went up to where now. Yeah, the first time I gave a massage, I was so excited and scared. And I gave a massage and for some reason, I remember I was in the point house talking with somebody after the massage and they told me that they talked with the person who had gotten the massage and they loved it and that was like, yay, my first massage was a success. In those days, we would never accept a tip. I would never, we didn't get tipped, we didn't expect it. Now we are welcoming tips, (laughs) we need those tips. But then we didn't get tips and the first time it was, they were hour and a half sessions, we had a lot of time to really give a full body massage. However, the massages, they were more, they weren't as three-dimensional as they are now. And also when we taught, we didn't talk. It's so amazing to me. People just watched us give the massage and they kind of got it by osmosis and then we'd go around and help them. Now when I teach, I say everything I can think of that I'm doing because you can't see what my hands are doing some of the time. But then we didn't talk and the massages were... Did you talk during the massage to your client? Mm-mm. We didn't talk. We did offer water halfway through. We gave a check-in with the client beforehand, and we might check about pressure, but we didn't usually talk. Now, if you happen to be in a room by yourself, maybe we would talk, but we didn't so much. Here's one question. Obviously, the fable, you know, is that people, the massage therapists, were unclothed as they gave the massage. Was this something that happened usually or sometimes? Okay, yes. In the early days... The massage therapists were nude. Their clients were nude. There wasn't any draping. It was really different. What was the experience of that? Part of it was that we were, everybody was trying to get people to accept their bodies and love their bodies, whatever size, shape it was, their bodies were, whatever they were. It was to get everybody to be more comfortable. And, and at the time, also a nude encounter was happening with Will Schutz. And I always wore a towel. I just had to wrap a towel around my middle because I was more comfortable with the towel. And I still wrap something around my middle, but this time for the oil slicks, but also because it makes me more comfortable. But gradually, as people started talking about experiences they were having, not in the massage, but in the world, and it became more uh, accepted for people to talk about sexual experiences that were unwelcome that they had had, then people started wanting to be clothed more, to create safe space. And then at one point in time, the uh, sheriff came down and said, if you're going to work unclothed, then you need to have an entertainment license. <laughs> so we did not want to have an entertainment license because that's not what we were doing. So we started wearing clothing. I don't know how. It, it really, for the most part, it wasn't sexual. It was just a massage. There were some things that happened for some people. And of course, it was an exploration of how open we could be with our body and accepting of our body and let touch come in without it necessarily being sexual. That's my thing on it. Was there this feeling that Esalen during those days was cutting edge? And I think it was. It's kind of like we did this big experimentation where nudie wasn't a big deal, and then all of a sudden the world came back in and said nudie is a big deal. And so we're just flowing with the times. I wonder if it will go in the other direction. I don't know. I want people to be more comfortable. If they're more comfortable clothes, wear clothes. 
in a massage. If you need to have clothing on, fine. It's going to work better if you are nude and we're going to drape you. But if you want to wear a bathing suit or your underwear, it's fine. But what did it feel like to you to be a part of this kind of cutting-edge institution? I mean, you're this... Exciting. Yeah, it felt exciting and interesting, sometimes scary, but mostly exciting. Could you explain it to your parents, from, from the, your you know, Jewish parents from parents Indiana? My what did they think? My parents came here, and they took a workshop, and it changed my dad's life and his approach. He got much softer. He wasn't as confrontive, and he said it saved his life to come here and take workshops because it, it changed how he was. He thought it changed how he was. It didn't totally change him, but it did change him a lot. Right. They were interesting. You know, it was hard for my mom to be nude at the baths. It was hard for me the first time, but um, it was hard for her, but she did it. She was game. They sound like pretty good parents. They were good parents. They really tried hard, and my mom was the kind of person where everybody came to her and talked about their problems. Mm -hmm. Funny that, because now I still have lots of people come to me and talk about what's going on, even though I'm not a, quote, official facilitator here. That's fine. I like to listen to people and reflect back, if it's helpful. So I've always been really active in the community here. And I've done a number of different side jobs as I was being a massage therapist here. And some of them were, in addition to being the... Well, I was a program liaison for massage programs for a long time. But I also did the labor pool. We used to have a labor pool, which meant that people's significant others, or sometimes people that were guests for more than two days, had to work. So I had to get all of them and shuffle around and put them where they were needed at Esalen. That was a job, <laughs> the labor pool. I did that for a long time. And I also did the Wednesday evening programs for a long time. That was, I would arrange all the Wednesday evening program people. I would bring people in from the outside. That's when we used to have Big Sur raves. We'd uh, out on the dance dome when it was still open. People would come in there. They came in their bus, some of them, and because they were the um, DJs and... We had a light show on sheets. I don't know how we rigged it up because the dance dome was just the platform at that point. At what point in time is this? Must be mid-90s, oh, okay. maybe mid-90s, or maybe 94, yeah, 92 or 4, something like that. 94, 5, 6. They were really fun. This is, a, this is the time when the rave was just being born, really. Right. So we had them here. I brought them here because I, I had some friends, and I, I had a boyfriend who was considerably younger than I was for quite a while. And we brought them here. It was, it was a lot of fun. People danced, and we tried to keep it so that it wasn't too out there. So Eslin was okay with it because they were worried about drugs and things. And... We didn't encourage people to take drugs, but people danced, and it was really a lot of fun. So doing the Wednesday evening program was always interesting, and I liked doing it, and I did it for a long time. When I became the manager of the healing arts department, they didn't. They wanted me to stop doing that because it was too. I was doing too many jobs because I was still teaching some, and I was still practicing some, and managing. 60 people, or we had a lot of people on the crew at that time, and we had the alternative bodywork crew, so. so I dropped the Wednesday evening program. I think that's a bunch of different things that I did here. What was the alternative bodywork crew all about? What kind of stuff was offered? Different kinds of bodywork that 
didn't fit as well at the baths. So there was craniosacral work, there was Feldenkrais work, there were, um, someone developed something called transpersonal kinesiology, that was there. Sometimes the astrology readings happened there. Cortical field re-education happened there, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something. But all different kinds of body work that didn't lend itself so well to the baths would happen in room 23. For a while, I did polarity treatments in there, energy work. So at a place like Esalen, where there's a lot of kind of esoteric elements, has there ever been anything that's too esoteric for you? Something that's, that you thought was just like, this is, this is just too much? I was challenged a little bit with Jenny and the Nine, who ran Esalen for a while through Dick. What was Jenny and the Nine? Jenny, nine, the Nine were like these extraterrestrial somethings that she was in connection with. It didn't resonate so much with me. But who, who, was, was who was Jenny? Jenny, I can't remember her last name. Jenny was a, either from Australia or New Zealand, and she somehow connected with Dick. Someone else probably has a story. And he really trusted them and it he changed his staff around because of that changed our managers around and she really influenced the way Esalen was run for a while the thing I appreciate about Dick is that he was definitely experimental he worked with that he went off with Rajneesh for a while and looked at what they were doing there and then decided when they started breaking arms in their process there that that wasn't the way to go but he at least explored and experimented with stuff and he brought some great, attracted some of the great teachers here. So did programs department, but Dick was a magnet at first for some of these people. And he was doing his own experimentation with his own neuroses or psychoses or whatever it was that he was exper- exploring. I don't want to give it a title. Whatever he was experiencing in his own being. And that gave him a better grounding to be able to, to work with people who might have similar experiences because he had had the experience himself and he had explored different ways to work with it and he could share it with people. What's a common myth about Esalen and can you debunk it? This thing about that it was all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was not my experience and I was here in the age when it was supposed to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There was a certain group of people who was definitely playing around with that but there were others who were experimenting in different ways with other things and it was a powerful time of exploration and experimentation. There were some deep things that were happening and people were starting to learn how to drop into themselves in deeper ways and communicate with each other in honest ways that didn't necessarily have to be hurtful but they were playing with however we communicate with each other whether it's through massage, touch, talk psychic things, astrology, whatever. We were playing with lots of things, and there was, yes, an element that was into messing around with drugs and sex, and maybe that's always happening wherever you are in the world. Um, And you could choose, I could choose to focus that way, or I could choose to go somewhere else and do something else with my time. There were a group of us called Out on a Limb, I don't know if you ever heard about the Out on a Limb group. That was Steve Harper and Benj Langdon and uh, Leah Thompson and Martha Clark. Leah was the head of Gazebo for years. And myself and a couple other people. Dick, great Dick, he let us book the little house. No, not the little house, the big house for a weekend. And we put blindfolds on and we plugged our ears 
and we hung out. We did a lot of contact improv together, so we had this idea to try blindfolding and earplugging ourselves. And Dick said, okay, you can do this experiment. So we just had people bring us food. We slept together on these big pillows, and, and there weren't any fences, and we walked around. We walked down to where the fish pond is. <laughs> we were experimenting. <laughs> and then Dick came the first night, and we took out our earplugs so we could talk with him. But that kind of exploration, we were trying to see how we communicate and how we could communicate without seeing each other and with first without even hearing each other. It was, I like that kind of thing. I don't want, and I have concern, for Esalen to lose that piece of freedom, that little feeling that happens when people don't feel constrained by all these rules and regulations. Yes, there need to be some as guidelines, but there also needs to be space. Talk to me a little bit more about the massage. Like what has made it interesting for you and valuable for you to continue doing massage and being involved in it for this long? I feel quite fortunate to have been here at Esalen and have all these teachers that are renowned in their field come through that really influenced the way I did body work, including Gabrielle and, of course, Charlotte Silver and Feldenkrais came through, but Traeger, Milton Traeger, he worked. I was so lucky that I often was a model for these people, so I felt their hands. And Milton Traeger, there's nobody who could do Traeger work like Milton, and he definitely influenced our massages, and we all started adding in a little bit of rocking to our sessions. I went out to learn polarity, but I went to someone's house who had been affiliated with Esalen and took a workshop in polarity with Dr. Stone. And later on, I wanted to bring him here, but I brought his protege instead, Pierre Panettier, and he taught a workshop. So all these different things influenced all of our work. Al Drucker took Ida Rolf's work and trained a bunch of us in Esalen deep tissue work. What keeps me doing massage is I love that deep connection with people that I can have when I drop into a deeper place. I love helping people feel themselves in a different way, perhaps become aware of someplace they're holding and have the opportunity to learn how to let go. Um, It's that deep connection and also hopefully creating space for people to have a place of quiet and comfort and perhaps a place where they can heal themselves from inside. I love that people come here to change their lives or just to have a different experience. The power of this land, I don't, you've heard me say it before, I don't think the things that happen here could have developed and been here in the way that they are without the power of the natural beauty of this land. Mm. and. That is why I continue to try to listen to it and pray to it and give thanks to it and for it and to invite people who come here to take a workshop to walk barefoot through that kakuya grass or to sit on a rock and breathe the air and experience something that they don't get to have in their lives. The other night, I like to walk at night a lot here because I just like to walk the land and it's safe. I was walking and some man was walking next to me. He's in a workshop. And he said, well, I was looking at the stars, and I said, wow, look at these stars. And he said, oh, you don't get to look at the stars? And I said, no, I do. 
and I still really appreciate him. And he said, oh, I don't get to. And I said, well, I'm so glad that you're here right now and you get to experience the stars. So some of us take it for granted. And I want to help people have that experience of feeling themselves in a different way. Maybe not always comfortable way, sometimes wonderful way, but something that is a learning, growing, sometimes enlightening experience for themselves. And that brings me joy. Let's hope this podcast somehow supports each one of us in being ourselves in a loving, kind way, listening to the land here at Esalen. Listening to the people who walk this land Feeling the spirits that have been here before And imagining the spirits who will come here after We are all so blessed to be able to walk this land To breathe this air to take off our shoes and feel the kakuya grass in between our toes. To hear the sounds of the ocean rocking and rolling to the shore. To see a night sky with stars sparkling, even reflecting on the waters. Many thanks for letting us all walk this land. Hoping this little talk might help somebody else see something inside themselves. Be willing to reach in and reach out and touch someone with love. Cause we all need to be touched with love. Thank you to all those who came before. Thank you to those who are walking the earth and doing their best to care for each other. And all the people who come through every day, every week, every month, every year. May we all Keep sharing our love and information on how to be more inside ourselves and carry that out into the world in a loving, in a kind-hearted way, I hope. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby, Michelle McCrary, and Michelle Broderick. Our music is by Nico Holloman. We've got a lot of exciting programming coming in the new year, including a 10-part series on psychedelics. So be sure to tune in, or even better, subscribe. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution.